But uh, remember what David was thinking back in 20, verse 3. 21, 1 to 9. Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came trembling to meet David and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you, and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. And the priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread. If only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey. How much more than today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord, in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg, the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. And David said to Ahimelech, Now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's matter was urgent. Then the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, there is none like it. Give it to me. So David flees with some men to Nob, where the priests were. And um, he's asked, why are you alone and no one's with you? And what does he say? The king sent me on a top secret mission. And I can't tell you anything about it. <laughs> What do you think about that? Poor lies. Not true. He doesn't want unwanted questions. So he says this to shut them up. But it's just <coughs> He's fleeing from Saul, and he's claiming Saul sent him on this mission. He's borrowing uh, devices from the father of lies and bringing them into the house of God. That was not a very good thing. And then what does David want? Food. What do they have? That special holy bread. What do we call that bread? Show. The showbread. Who is supposed to eat the showbread? Only? <coughs> Only. Leviticus 24.9 It shall be for Aaron and his son. And they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offering by fire, his portion forever. This was not for David. Where was that? Le uh, Leviticus 24 9. Uh, this was not for David and his men to eat. And what else was it that David <laughs> needed? A weapon. A weapon. Do they have any there on hand? 
Just one. Just one. Which one? Yeah, Goliath's, uh, I almost want to say, uh, Goliath's next sword. Uh, so she's not still there. But uh, Goliath's sword. And how does David feel about taking that as his weapon? It's a good one. Hey, <laughs> there's none like it. I don't know about that. I mean, you know, certainly hadn't done much for Goliath, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Hey. I want you to see the contrast between the Goliath story and this one. Even in the point of the sling versus the sword, what did David think he needed to fight the giant? Yes, slinging five stones. I mean, nothing really, because he had the Lord. I mean, when he was good with God, this Philistine giant did not intimidate him. You know, he was a midget before God. But now that he's losing his trust in the Lord, you know, even Saul becomes an invincible menace. He can't deal with it. And he lies, and he eats the special bread that he wasn't supposed to eat, and he puts his trust and confidence in a human weapon. You know, he is not trusting the Lord. Now, you can understand why. You can understand this was a trying, difficult time. But he wasn't doing the right thing. Those, those mistakes he made, the sins he committed, lying, eating the special bread, and relying on Goliath's sword, all of them were wrong things for him to do, I think because he was doubting God when he said, there's only a step between me and death. We look at things kind of as... Uh lawful and then we also look at them as expedient um, and I think this is a good uh, good case where something is expedient but it's not lawful and then that doesn't make it right it's still unlawful just because it's expedient doesn't make it lawful. yeah it looks like a good idea looks like it works well but it's not the right thing and we will eventually see it doesn't have good consequences either. God will cause it to blow up in David's face, but we have got to wait a little to see that. Yeah? In addition to all this, is him running away from town to town, is that also a lack of faith? Well, I mean, I don't know there was a lack of faith when he ran to Samuel, for example, earlier. I don't know that he has to stay there. I think he can run. Now, uh, where he's about to run in the next section, I don't think he's where he wants to run. But as long as he was running in Israel, I found he probably would have been Explain um, Jesus' use of this story. Because I kind of saw his kind of Yeah, in Mark chapter 2, Jesus mentions this, and people really struggle with this passage. Uh, they don't realize this. But, uh, in Mark chapter 2, verse 23, it happened that Jesus was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need, and he and his companions became hungry? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is a Sabbath day. The disciples of Jesus are traveling. 
and they're stopping by some fields alongside the road, picking and, and eating the grain that was there. Now, what we usually would question about that is, did that grain belong to them? Were those their fields? Sounds like stealing to us. But the law had specific provisions for that. If you were traveling, you could take and eat something from somebody else's field. You couldn't like put it in a sack to take it home, you know, but you could take and eat what you could eat right there. It was kind of their way of avoiding the need for McDonald's, you know, and so it was a convenient way to deal with that. The farmer's never gonna miss an ear or two of grain. But since this was the Sabbath day, it violated the Pharisees' Sabbath rules. Their Sabbath rules would have said that this was work and you couldn't work on the Sabbath day. The truth is the Pharisees had added all sorts of extra restrictions to the Sabbath law over and beyond what God really intended. And so this was not in God's sight work that was inappropriate. Uh, but Jesus defends this by saying, um, haven't you read what David did in the time uh, here of Abiathar the priest, how he ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat. Now, let me tell you, I hate doing this, but let me give you the argument that's made. I hate giving you the wrong argument, but you need to understand it for me to be able to refute it. The wrong argument is, well, see, Jesus is saying that it was okay for David to break the law of God about the consecrated bread when they were hungry because mercy trumps the law or human need trumps the law. And so if you're starving, you can break the law and eat the bread that you're not supposed to eat. And the same way Jesus' disciples could break the law and eat the grain that they weren't supposed to eat on the Sabbath day. And therefore, if we're starving, or if, we, if there's some great need, mercy is greater than the law, and you can break the law. Well, there's about a zillion things wrong with that. In the first place, clearly, in first Samuel, it wasn't right that David did this, and it's going to have terrible consequences in the next chapter. In the second place, it wasn't lawful for David to eat that. Leviticus 24.9 says that, and so does Jesus. Jesus said he ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. Jesus said it wasn't right for him to do it. The third place, Jesus' disciples did not break the law. They broke the tradition of the Pharisees. In the fourth place, did Jesus think you had the right to break the law if you got really hungry? Remember anything about that? Amen. When Satan said, hey, you're really hungry, you better turn these stones to bread, Jesus refused. He said, it doesn't matter about the bread, it matters about the word of God. That's what you live by. And he was 40 days and nights with no food. There's no indication that Jesus' disciples were starving to death here in Mark 2, nor that David and his men were starving to death in 1 Samuel 21. If anybody was starving to death, it would have been Jesus in Matthew 4, and that's when he refused to turn the stones to bread. I think the better explanation of this 
is that Jesus was showing the inconsistency of the Pharisees. <laughs> On the one hand, they condemn and criticize Jesus and his disciples when they ate something that was okay for them to eat. It wasn't wrong for them to take and eat grain on the Sabbath day. The law never condemned them. That was just their tradition. On the other hand, they justified David and made him a hero when he and his men ate what was not lawful for them to eat. You can see how these critics of Jesus are, are playing favorites. You know, when you criticize the guy that does the right thing and, and, and you heroize the guy who does the wrong thing, what, what are you showing about yourself? So I think Jesus is showing their inconsistency. I don't believe Jesus is saying that it was okay for David to eat it. In fact, he said it wasn't. 1 Samuel 21 says it wasn't. Jesus is surely not saying it's okay to break God's law if you're hungry, because he didn't believe that. So I think we have to understand this carefully. I think understanding 1 Samuel 21 helps us greatly. Would we say it was right for David to lie? Would we say it was right for him to trust uh, Goliath's sword? And what we're going to see in the next chapter is this is eventually going to lead to the massacre of the priests. And David is going to see himself as responsible for the priests being massacred. And, and once we see that, we realize David even acknowledges that what he did was wrong. Now, that may have opened up a whole can of worms. I don't assume that everybody in here agreed with that and probably doesn't still. So you're welcome to defend your perspective. But uh, thank you. I was going to say, it's interesting that, you know, I mean, Jesus does give the commentary that being unlawful, really, in the text, he said, well, that's for the priest. Why don't we put this sort of twist on it? If the young men have kept themselves from women, we'll make it okay. So, I mean, the priest does kind of like know it's wrong, but kind of tries to make it a little bit more of a, they're being holy now, so we'll make it okay. Yes, yes. Puts a condition, just not the Lord's condition. Yes, good point. Yes, I've done for. See your points about uh, the lying and the and the eating of the showbread. I don't know about the sword. Um, in in a sense, it was rightfully his because he's the one who who won the sword. But also, he used a sling before. What's it to use? What you know? What's the big deal if he uses a sword now? So, I was just thinking, God can save by sling. He can save by sword. He can save by a a great confrontation on the battlefield. Or maybe his plan is that you run and hide and fend for yourself. So, those Well, here's one thing. Wonder why that sword was in the tabernacle or not. What's the idea of that? Trophy. As a kind of a tribute to God giving David the victory over Goliath. That's probably where it ought to stay. You know, because God still deserves that acknowledgement. I, I, it's not that it's wrong to use means. I think I would say the contrast is David's not turning to God but to a sword. If David was turning to God and using a sword, okay. If he's saying that it's God that he's trusting in. I think the interesting thing and the, the key thing here is he's not trusting in God. It's only the sword. Goliath's sword of that taking it away as a trophy from God's tabernacle to use it for his own agenda. That would be my opinion. Ethan? Uh, David didn't beat Goliath. God beat Goliath. Amen. So the sword was God's. Yes. Yeah, well said. 
Uh, I don't think I disagree with, with your end, end point with uh, Mark 2, but you know, Matthew 12 um, you know, tell, is the same story. And what's interesting to me there is how it first talks about entering the, the, the house of God, which you shouldn't have done, which is not lawful. But then the next verse, Jesus says, what about the priests on the Sabbath? How they profane the Sabbath and are guiltless. And so uh, Matthew makes me question the maybe the, the easier reading of Mark in the sense of, do the priests really profane the Sabbath? No. They profane the Sabbath. It's not really profaning it. So maybe Jesus is pointing to, if you really understood what the Sabbath was about, you would see that what we're doing is not breaking it. Again, I agree with the same conclusion. We can't sin because we're in need. But, but uh, what would you say about that? Here's what I would say. Good question. This is, this is a difficult passage. It's good to think about the different angles. When you look at Mark, Matthew 12, I agree, that, that juxtaposition is more difficult. But look at this. He talks about David, and in verse 4 he said, How he entered the house of God, and they ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those with him, but for the priests alone. So he makes the same statement. Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent? Jesus said it wasn't lawful for David to eat. It's innocent what the priests do. I think he's making two separate points. He's showing their inconsistency with the point about the priests. He's showing that it is innocent to break the Sabbath to do a work God once done. In a, in a sense, he's almost showing very consistency, but it's a different kind of inconsistency. You know, they, they tried to define out all these laws about you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do that, you can't do that, but added a whole bunch of other things. And yet, what do they say about the priests? The priests do all kinds of stuff on the Sabbath. They break the Sabbath, especially what the Pharisees would say about the Sabbath, and yet they're innocent. And, and the Pharisees would agree with that. So I, I, I'm not sure that, that that really, he's making two separate points. Perhaps both of them showing Pharisaic inconsistencies, but in different ways. Roger. Part of that, I, I think that he can connect it with the other story in Mark chapter 3, where again he uses the word unlawful and lawful when he's talking about the guy with the hand. Uh, and I just think like Jesus is really just trying to teach the Pharisees that they're inconsistent in how they view lawfulness and unlawful. And Jesus is saying, I'm not doing anything that's unlawful. David did something that's unlawful because God said it was unlawful. And God desires faithfulness rather than these sac sacrifices that don't really God demands, you know? Like God wants faithfulness to his law. Anybody want to defend the other perspective? I realize we've kind of bashed it, but I, I don't want to just not allow that. And sometimes that strengthens the conclusion if somebody wants to present the other side. I, I usually don't have to, but if somebody wants to, I don't want you to feel intimidated. All right, well, I appreciate you getting to talk about that. Think about that. Study that. That is, that is a lot of brethren would not agree with what we just said. But I really do believe that's what it's saying. So consider that. And, and let me say this too. Just as a, um, a point of Bible study. You know one of the things that is really important to do when we study the New Testament is go back and study what's referred to in the, uh, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When, when the New Testament refers to some Old Testament, like takes a citation or, or makes a reference back. So often we never really look at the Old Testament context. 
We just know it from the New Testament. Well, you, if, if, if I just you know, pull something out, you know, remember that Ethiopian guy that was riding in the chariot? You in your mind think about the whole story, but I just made a brief illusion. When Jesus makes an illusion, he's thinking about the whole story. He's assuming we know that story and that we understand the context. If we don't understand the context, we really need to go back and understand the Old Testament context of the passage or of the illusion to really understand the point that's being made. When you look at what Jesus is saying and then go back and look at 1 Samuel 21, I think in the context that we can really see in 1 Samuel 21, David is not doing what's right. He's losing his faith in God in this, and he's doing several wrong things, even in the next section we'll see. And so that makes it easier to properly understand Jesus' reference to this. Comments and thoughts, John? So, uh, I was just thinking about this, that David and Saul, they both panicked. They both, uh, you know, did not trust God. They both did uh, something that was only supposed to be done by priests. But yet, the judgment was different. So, you know, how, how does God show mercy in that respect? Why did David get mercy and, and really didn't get reprimanded at all for this? Because David, in chapter 22, will acknowledge his sin. Saul never took responsibility. You could make the same statement about David's sin with Bathsheba. But when Nathan rebuked him, he didn't shift the blame. He said, I have sinned first thing, and, and accepted the full responsibility. You think that's, that's I think that's a difference. Yeah, I, I mean, can you say what Saul did was worse than what David did? I'm not sure you can. But I think you could say the reaction is different afterwards when they reviewed Michael. In fact, I'd say that David was far worse after we've read Leviticus a couple of years ago and what it meant to keep what was holy, uh, possibly what it meant to take back from the Lord what you dedicated to him. You consider those things, David did some things that were worse than what Saul did. And there were definitely consequences, if not punishment, for that. You know, he still had he had to answer for that. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I, one of the things I'd say also, we see we see this every once in a while in First Samuel. We're seeing it right now in this chapter 20, 21, 22, 23 sort of thing. You know, it's so hard for us to study the Bible and only look at a little piece at a time. Because when you see it in the light of the whole three or four chapter segment, it kind of changes your perspective on it. And, and, and we make a mistake sometimes when we only really want to just, I just want this little part. But, but if you see the little part in the light of the whole, it helps you understand the function of the little part. So I'm borrowing a lot of understanding chapter 22 and 23 now, as I'm explaining 21, just like I was borrowing my understanding of 21 to explain 20. You kind of have to see where the story's going, and that sort of gives you the Lord's interpretation of the story, which is going to become obviously different. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking uh, you know, David does this bad thing in the priesthood and die, and David does the bad thing in 2 Samuel and Uzzah's going to die and you look at David having five who they die for the bad thing that they did and um, it's just interesting to see God's judgment falling in different ways And but a lot of this got to do with like God picked David and God wasn't going to 
whack David because of this. He wasn't going to whack David later because something else. Like, and a combination of God choosing David and having his heart set on David and having plans for David, with that combined with David doing all these dumb things but always coming back. Like those two things together, like it's kind of unstoppable, you know, because when, when you combine God's uh, willingness to hold on to us with his immense mercy, and you put that with our willingness to admit our failures, and that just does there's no stop to that kind of thing. That's it's empowering to know that's kind of what God's grace is in our lives. Amen. Good, good point. Yes, Jack. Going back to what we were talking about earlier, just sin in general, regardless of the motive, it's still sin. Yes. Regardless of anything, if it's unintentional sin or accidental sin or premeditated or sin to cover up another sin, whatever it is, sin is always sin. Uh, I, I've heard a lot of people even say, you know, kind of the controversial argument, of, you know, what if right before someone dies, they accident, accidentally let a, a word slip or something? And, you know, how could God possibly punish someone like that? Well, the unfortunate thing is, it's true, sin is sin. And I've heard people say, you know, maybe God looks at your heart or can forgive something like that. Um, and I might be opening up a new can of worms, but it still is related to the idea of people saying, you know, if you're hungry, it's okay to sin. It's still kind of along the same lines, just sin, regardless, is still sin. Sometimes we ask questions that we don't really have any business asking. We just need to do what's right. We need to love God, we need to trust Him, we need to serve Him. When I start asking all sorts of questions about how's God going to judge this, and you give me this scenario and tell me what's going to happen, well, how, how can I do that? I'm not the judge, but I can say, Here's what's right. Here's what we need to do. Yeah, Josh. So, are we supposed to look at Goliath's sword being here as kind of a similar thing as maybe like the manna or Aaron's rod being there? Well, I don't think so. I would see the manna or Aaron's rod as being more remembrances of of. Get what God's done, but not so much trophy of victory. Oh so but, is that a common thing that we see other places in the Bible? Yeah. You're going to ask me where, and I can't tell you just right offhand. But yeah, there are some other passages where um, somebody came up with, didn't we have a couple of those in this study yesterday or sometime? What are some other passages where the God would get the trophy of war? Well, like bringing uh, the ark to Dagon's temple. Somebody came up with one or two more, I think. I, I'd said the, the vessels of the temple that Nebuchadnezzar and yes. take yes. like Zechariah's Yes. Somebody else have some others? I think there would be some others. But Tim? Would there have also been the rest of the tumors from when the Philistines came back? Okay, maybe in some way. Uh, what did they do? What did they do with Saul's uh, body? You know, they hung the, that up in the temple, I think, and so forth. So, you know, I, I think that was kind of a common practice from what I understand. You know, you kind of acknowledge, give credit to your God for winning the victory by taking, you know, the weapons and the spoils or whatever and, and dedicating it to your God, putting it in a gentle name. Um, I was going to say also when we're thinking about what David actually did, I, I'm re we're really glad that he reacts the way he does, but when he does, like, actually come forward and set, like, explains what had happened, it's really sad to see, like, he knew what the ramifications of 
um, dealing with the priest in the way that he did and did it anyway. I mean, he seemed, he's very clear when he finally speaks about how he saw who was there, he knew what was going to happen, and he just took that risk. When we lose our trust in God and we start inventing our own ways of protecting ourselves, we're going to end up with that I think it is safe to say that there are some times where God just doesn't show the same kind of mercy to people. Like, I mean, there are times where people are judged very quickly, don't have time to really see, be confronted, you know, by uh, prophets and told that they were wrong. You know, they're judged right on the spot, and you know, we might not understand that. Yes. Well. I don't know that we're bound to say that God gives everybody the same number of opportunities to repent or whatever. But also, God knows circumstances. He knows the heart. God knows all sorts of things we don't know. So I don't even think we have a way of evaluating those things. Certainly not. Mike? Yeah, we also say that just because you suffer the consequence of sin, death, doesn't mean you're guilty before the Lord on the judgment day. I mean... We would say you suffer the consequences for other things. Uh, you know, you have to live with your consequences, as David did later. When the consequence is death, and even immediate death, so, always say that somebody might respond by saying, "Didn't give them an opportunity to repent." Uh, you know how all that is. I don't know. Let's do this last section. I think we can do this before we break for supper. Uh, Ten to fifteen. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul is saying his thousands and David is ten thousands? They took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. So disguised his sanity before them and acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate and let his saliva run down into his beard. Then Achish said to the servants, Behold, you see the man behaving as a madman. Why do you bring him to me? Do I lack, do I, do I lack madmen? Do I that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? So David fled for asylum to Achish king of Gath. Remember anything about Gath? That's Goliath city. Not a smart move. The only good thing about that is Saul's not going to seek for him there. You know, Saul's not going to get him there. <laughs> the only bad thing about that is there's lots of Philistines around there. And uh, he happens to be carrying Goliath's sword. And, uh, <laughs> you know, he's been killing his ten thousands and all that. Uh, I, when we don't trust in the Lord, we don't do very smart things. And uh, they, they detected who he was. And they brought him to Achish. And he's in big trouble. And what does he do? He likes like he's crazy. Yeah, he likes like he's crazy. He's into his beard and starts scribble on the wall and acting like he's crazy. Very uh, undignified episode in his career, you might say. And it works. Aegis says, man, I got plenty of crazy, man. I got a glut of those. Why don't you bring me one more? It just, just drives him out. So it works, but why? Wasn't uh, 
a worthy episode for God's anointed king. And it just showed God let him escape. But he just he pulled a lot of orders in this chapter. It was not good. It wasn't good because he wasn't trusting in God. He was thinking he had to take matters into his own hands to save his life. Because after all, there was only a step between him and death. Comments, questions. Did he not know where he was going? Or he's just like walking there with glass or something. I mean, I don't have an explanation other than when you're not trusting the Lord, you don't think. I mean, later on, after it's well known that he's Saul's enemy, he defects to Achish, and that makes sense. But at this point, I don't know what he's Maybe somebody has an explanation. Roger? Uh, what was it? Uh, I think it's Psalm 34. It's written, I guess, right after this or during this or whatever it is. It's actually a psalm of, uh, of deliverance. Uh, that God delivered uh, David. And it's interesting, God would deliver David uh, when David was real faithful to him. But even God delivered him even when, when he was acting like an idiot. And I mean, that's the story of our lives, too. I mean, God delivers us when we're faithful, but God has delivered us in times where, like, you know, we don't deserve yes. to deliver. And praise be to God for mercy for that. Amen. Amen. Um, with David going to God, carrying Goliath's sword, um, it's the prime example of what happens to us when we stop trusting God and we stop leaning on Him. Many times we'll do everything, go to every doctor, read every magazine or book, trying to fix our problems. And it just gets really worse until we finally turn back to God. Good point. Yes. Can I go yeah. a little bit off of that? It's, it's really interesting to see this contrast of, I guess, where David's faith and his trust is, whereas the first time he flees from Saul, he flees to Samuel and he flees to, I guess, he, he's leaning on God. He flees to a man of God. But now here he's fleeing to, you know, the enemy of Israel. Yes. Fleeing to where Goliath is. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. That shows you something, doesn't it? Other thoughts? Stephen? I don't know what to make of all these, but Psalm 34 has a lot of interesting tidbits that kind of connect where it says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He, he's just had the, the show bread. Um, he says, uh, I don't know if it's actually a, a tie-in there or not, but um, he says, Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that you may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Um, and he's already been involved with, with those things, but it's going to forgive him of those. Uh, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, saves those who are crushed in spirit. Uh, he's been dealing with that situation, but because of the Lord is, is good. Um, it's interesting to see... And he writes the psalm in, in that kind of context. And also, it's just kind of interesting how this this song of the ladies keeps coming up. It's like the, the hit single of their day. Well, I thought about it quite that way, but uh, yeah, very good. Other thoughts and comments. You know, I've noticed myself, lines get funnier the later in the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps that wasn't a successful one. Right, anything else you want to see on chapter 21? All right. I think we will go ahead and stop here. Uh, if I can remember, I need to tell you a couple of things before we actually break.
uh, and I will do that. Let's go ahead, though, for a moment and have a prayer, and thank God for the food we're going to eat as well, and then let me tell you a couple more things before we pray. Cameron, you want to leave us a quick Our dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now asking you to guide us and protect us and to guide our minds, Lord, to constantly be keeping you in the forefront of our minds. Just help us to understand that you are our creator and everything around us, we cannot understand it, but that you created it. And that even though there is such a vast universe, and even though there's so much out there that you could look after, and that you do look after, but you look especially after us. And we praise you and we thank you for that. Please help us to constantly to put you first in our lives, Lord. Please help us to learn from the study. And thank you for the chance to be able to study over 1 Samuel. And please help us to apply it to our lives, Lord. And please help us to understand it and just to continually search your word. Not just stopping at the end of 1 Samuel, but continuing throughout the whole Bible. Please keep us safe and please keep our minds safe. And please help us to constantly keep you in the forefront of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let me suggest that we uh, remember the website liveforit.us. That's where the audio file of this will eventually be. So if you want those, that's the place to go, as well as for more information about singings and other spiritual activities that uh, my sister and mother-in-law do at their house in Indianapolis. So remember that. Um, we can probably hang around here for about five minutes before we go over there uh, to the Barbersville. It's the same place it was this afternoon. Uh, and uh, then we'll try to get back here at a reasonable time. I don't know exactly what that'll be. We all get back over here at 7.30 or quarter late or whatever, we'll start back. So, uh, you know, just make that as efficient as you can. I really appreciate your attention. Uh, I think this time right before supper tends to be the uh, tiredest time for you guys. But, wow, you've done great with that. It's really encouraging. I know it's encouraging to the brethren here. Uh, they've spoken well of uh, you as you spent the night and uh, the interaction that you've had. So I appreciate that. It's very encouraging. The thing we want to try to do, encourage each other, build each other up, and, and, and be a blessing to each other. So that's been uh, you know, very encouraging, and I appreciate that. And, uh, so thank you for all these things. Let's thank and praise God, and uh, let's be motivated to keep studying. So you can wait about five minutes and then go on over to...